Father, the applause is for you. Thank you. What a day that will be. We grow so weary sometimes of hoping and hurting and failing and crying and being disappointed. But you will bring a day where all of that will be erased. And even death will be swallowed up by the victory of life. And there will be no more struggle, no more disappointment, no more physical pain, no more spiritual pain of shame or guilt. You will win overall. You will be victorious and you will share your victory with us and welcome us as beloved members of God's family. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. People are so reluctant to get excited at church. It's the craziest thing. You go to watch first graders chase a soccer ball around. People go nuts, right? People applaud at the end of movies. The people who made the movie aren't even there to hear it. And you applaud at the end of the movie. I was in a, I was in a movie theater that the movie... Right? Made a year earlier, got a standing ovation at the end. Like, who are we standing for? The director's not here, you know? The actor's in Hollywood. And in church, the greatest things in the world are announced. Is it okay to clap? Is it okay to smile? I'm thrilled to be here with you. If we haven't met, my name's Bruce Garner. Welcome to Crosspoint. Glad you're here, especially if you're here for the first time. Uh, at the end of the service, we'd love to greet you. Right over here to my left at the back of the room, we have a, a gift for you. We have a little coffee tumbler, and we'll put a gift card in it so you can fill it with coffee or tea if that is your persuasion. Entirely up to you. We're just not that intrusive into your life, okay? We'd just like to give you a gift. We've been talking about growing up. That's how we began the year at Cross Point. Once every settle, everybody settled back in from vacation, we've been talking about, and I've been trying to show you in Scripture, the clear path that God has laid out so that every one of His kids, beginning with being placed in the family of God by trusting Jesus and experiencing what Jesus Himself called the new birth, meaning you're a new person, you have a new identity. God is now not only your creator, but your Father who wants to nourish you and protect you and bring you along. We've been talking about how God Himself grows people up. As most of you know, if you've come here for any length of time, I can't help but reference the most formative thing in my life growing up was growing up outside of the United States in Mexico. And coming back to the United States with a family of my own with two little boys and one in that moment in need of schooling when we returned to the U.S. about 13 years ago. One of the great surprises was discovering really for the first time just how much we, because of our wealth in America and because of our knowledge of education and human development, have been able to customize a system for individual students and learners. And that's for students who need extra support and also for those who may have been born with special gifts and talents. Wherever children begin, we've got the ability in California and in Texas where we were at the time to build not only individual programs but sometimes entire schools around helping them and supporting them. I didn't know such a thing existed until we tried to enroll our son. We're in Odessa, Texas, living with my in-laws for a short time, getting reacclimated to the States. And we wanted to enroll, or we needed, it's the law, to enroll our kid in school. 
and a school near us was Ronald Reagan Elementary. And I thought, America, you know, Ronald Reagan Elementary. Maybe they'll have a flyby every morning. Uh, that just sounds, that sounds great, right? So we went to the school district and said, uh, we'd like to enroll our son at, uh, we're close to Ronald Reagan. Uh, elementary school, and she kind of sniffed and said, well, Mr. Garner, that's, that's an academic school. And I thought to myself, aren't they all? I mean, isn't that, <laughs> is that like a, an aquatic swimming school? Isn't that how it works? Aren't schools academic? And she went on to explain that this particular town, small as it was, about 100,000 people, I think, had all kinds of different schools, and I learned for the first time that there were such things as magnet schools, and Reagan in particular was for kids who had already shown beyond the normal aptitude for certain kinds of subjects. My son ended up in something that God just providentially placed in that little town for him. He ended up in a bilingual school. When we came back to the States, he was American on the outside but Mexican on the inside and really didn't speak a whole lot of English. And his teacher, which sliced and diced half the day in Spanish and half the day in English, was actually from the city we had just moved from. So it was a perfect little on-ramp for him to begin his education. And then I thought to myself, what a blessing to live in a country that has the resources to do all this. Now, why am I telling you all that? Because if you're living in the United States right now, you're well aware of these kinds of programs and the gifted programs. And when it comes to your spiritual development, I'm convinced through Scripture and pastoral experience of over 20 years that most Christians that are in God's family suffer under a terrible, terrible misapprehension. They're victimized by a lie, which is simply this. They don't have much to offer. Whether it's their past, failure, shame, guilt, troubled conscience, lack of experience, they think they need to learn more and grow more and mature more. When it comes time to talking to believers in Christ about what their gifts may be, and informing them that as believers in Christ, they are all quite literally already in the gifted program. Most people, most of you probably do not believe that. And you're going to have a little trouble with this sermon in the beginning probably because you're going to think that this is some kind of motivational pep talk that I've come up with. And really, the gifts are for somebody else, maybe for somebody who has a mic and stands under lights or is in some way known, or is in some way especially trained, that's been to school, that's gone through certain courses, and those people, those men and women, those are the ones who were actually gifted. So what I want to do, because it's what we do at Crosspoint, we move right through Scripture, I want you to open your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 4 and show you what Paul taught a very ordinary group of Christians that he had brought the gospel to some 2,000 years ago. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I'm in the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you in the seats. And find with me, please, the book of Ephesians chapter 4. It has that strange name because Paul is writing to Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus. If he were writing to us, he might write, it, he might write an epistle to the Californians. 
or the, I don't know, Orange Countyans sounds weird, right? We'll just call it Californians. Modern-day Turkey, people saved out of the worst kinds of pagan religions, people so new in the faith that in this same letter, he has to tell them things like this, stop getting drunk with wine and start being controlled by the Holy Spirit. You are in the habit of giving control of your mind and body to alcohol. Stop doing that. Start giving control to God. He says things like this. If you've been stealing, stop. Get a job. Work with your hands so that you may have something to share with someone else who has a need. I mean, it's basic instruction. This isn't seminary-level stuff. This is not graduate school. He's not talking, in other words, to an elite group of Christians. Does that make sense? He's talking to people who have just been snatched out of a wicked, pagan life, a city legendary, actually, for witchcraft and occultism, people who, when they were hearing the good news about Jesus, had all manner of reasons to look into their past, and when Paul wrote them what I'm about to read you, they had ample reason to say, no way, not me. And he starts in Ephesians 4 by telling them the things that bring them together. Ephesians 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, Paul's in prison it seems, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, God has called you, act like it. Don't be guilty of conduct unbecoming a Christian. Here's what that looks like. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the next three verses, he's going to tell them the things that are true for all of them, the things that are true for every Christian in all time. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you, plural, were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, these are the things that bring you together. This is your common heritage in the family of God. Make sense so far? He's talking to all of them. You all have one faith. You all have the same Lord. You all share in the same baptism, so stick together and act like it. Now, in verse 7, he's going to turn and speak to them individually and say, though they are in one family, they've all been gifted in different ways. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Another translation says we have each received a special gift from Christ's generosity. In other words, everyone is in the family, but God the Father in His wisdom and Jesus Christ in particular, having brought people into the family, saved us together, saved us in a common way that we all share, and once we're in the family, we're each individually gifted in a particular and individual way. So the first truth from Scripture is this, every Christian has received a gift from Christ. You've received the common gift of salvation, and once you have that, the passage will go on to show that Jesus, for His own good reasons, from His own generosity, turns to every member of God's family 
If God is your father, that means Jesus is your older brother. You're in God's family by adoption. You have God as a father and Christ as a brother. What a, what a family. A lot of times people reject their family of origin and look at the neighbor, look at their friend and say, man, I wish, I wish things were different than mine. You've been gifted, you've been brought into by God's grace, the greatest family of all. You have God as your father. You have Christ as your Savior and your older brother opening the way into the family for you. And your older brother, Jesus Christ, has made sure from His grace that according to the generosity, the measure of His gift, He's given you something. He's given you a gift. Now, the verses that follow are some of the most complicated in the New Testament. I'm going to read them first, and I want to point out to you that Paul is going back into his Bible what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He's going to refer all the way back to Psalm 66. If you have a Bible with references in it, it'll be in very small print saying when Paul's writing this, he's not writing it originally, he's quoting. And the culture is going to probably hide the meaning from you in the beginning, so I'll try to explain it. Verse 7, grace was given to each one of us. Remember that. I want to underline that. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, here's the psalm, Psalm 68, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captive, and He gave gifts to men. What? Paul explains. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. That's super clear, right? Everybody knows what Paul's talking about? I didn't. Not when I first read this. And the reason is Paul's using word pictures. He's using images from his day and from even more ancient times in the days of the Psalms. Let me explain it to you. Verse 8 says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What is going on here? It's an ancient war picture. In ancient days, when a general or a king would go from his kingdom to face the enemies who wanted in the ancient days, not only to bring people to heal and to calm them down, but to actually destroy them and annihilate them, to either utterly kill and destroy them or make them into their slaves. When that king or general went out and fought successfully, it was very common in those days when he had won for him to bring back a parade of captives to the city he was defending. And they had this great thing. The Romans called it a triumph. And they would bring all these soldiers and officers and maybe even royalty from the enemies. And the king would say, essentially, through that parade, look, here's the people that wanted to kill you. Notice that they're in chains. They're safe. Also, we took all their stuff. So our gross domestic product just tripled in the last three weeks. We've won, and we have their whole treasury. That's why it says, when Jesus was here, he led a host of captives. And what's the next line? He gave gifts. That's what would happen. There would be the treasure, the loot, in other words, would be distributed. And then it says, still speaking about Jesus, 
It speaks about ascending and descending to the earth. What's this about? Well, let's remember what we've just celebrated at Christmas time. Christmas time, we recognize and celebrate the historic fact that what happened? Christ was born on earth. That's him descending. The King of glory, the Lord of all things, the creator of the universe, came down, humbled himself, and lived among us. He descended to this low earth. Then he lived an exemplary, beautiful, perfect, sinless life. And on Easter, we will recognize and remember on Good Friday that they killed him. He died on the cross. And three days after dying on the cross, historically, verifiably, what did he do? He rose from the grave. And most Christians stop the story there. But the story of Jesus on earth does not stop with the resurrection. What did he do over a month after his resurrection? He ascended. And if you don't recall that, read the book of Acts. His eyewitnesses saw him ascend, and even though they knew he was back from the dead, his literal physical ascension back to the glory which he had descended from left them astonished, and they literally didn't know what to say or do. They actually needed a nudge to get moving again because, understandably, they just stood there like this. Why is Paul tying all of this into verse 7, saying that Christ has given every individual Christian a gift? Because when Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended to glory, he did that for two reasons. One, to secure your salvation, but also to give you individually gifts that belong to him who is going to fill the whole universe. In other words, who's in charge of everything. Your giftedness as a Christian is just as certain and just as assured as your salvation itself. And the misconception is this. Many Christians, probably the majority of the people who've heard me in three services will say, at least quietly to themselves, it's not out loud, I trust Jesus to save me, but not to give me any gifts. I'm nothing special. And you know what? When you say and when I say I'm nothing special, we're right. You know who is special? Jesus, who did all of this. He came to the earth, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, and he ascended to glory to lead captive everything that would hurt and destroy you, to lead death itself captive, and along with that, to give gifts to all the people he had saved. So, every Christian has received a gift from Christ, and the misunderstanding really begins in verse 8. Because verse 8 tells me that though every Christian has received a gift from Christ, some Christians have received a gift to lead. Some Christians have been gifted to lead. Look in verse 8. I'm sorry, in verse 11. And he gave, it's the same gifting language. In other words, Jesus gives as a gift certain kinds of people. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Please understand what I'm saying and make a note if you need to. Verse 7 says, each one of us, you Ephesians, you who were drunk six months ago, you who were stealing, 
and not doing anything to earn your own keep, you have been gifted by Christ. His victory over the grave and His ascension to heaven guarantee that you're in the gifted program. All of God's kids are They're all gifted. Verse 8 says that same Christ gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds and teachers. Who are these people? Well, the apostles and the prophets are foundational people that you can actually read about in the book of Acts. Apostles were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, like the man who's writing to you here, the apostle Paul. Prophets were men who, particularly in the apostolic times, spoke forth the Word of God and made clear the Word of God. The New Testament was still being written. And Paul says elsewhere, earlier in this letter, that the apostles and the prophets are part of the foundation of the church. In other words, these are foundation layers of the whole Jesus movement. Now, here's the thing about foundations. If you do it well, how many times do you need to put a foundation in? Once. You think Jesus is a good builder or a bad builder? He's pretty good. He gave a solid foundation to his church. He did that through the apostles and the prophets. And with that foundation laid, there are still even now people who serve as evangelists. In other words, these are people who share the truth of Jesus outside the church to people who haven't heard about it yet. And there are also, Paul says, there are shepherds and teachers. And most people believe that in the Greek grammar, This is a shepherd's dash teachers. In other words, this is a single person whose work consists of two different kinds of things. A shepherd is someone who looks out for your soul, who cares for you, who tries to protect you spiritually, and also, as part of doing that, teaches you the Word of God. Commonly called elsewhere in Scripture and in our everyday life, that's a pastor. But this verse 11 says these are some of the gifts that Jesus gave. Here's the great misunderstanding. Every Christian has received a gift from Christ. It's just that some of all the gifted Christians, some have been gifted specifically and personally to lead. But, number two, the role of those leaders is to equip everyone else to use their gift. That's verse 12. It's one of the most important verses in the New Testament if you're ever going to walk in the will of God. Let me back up and read from verse 11. Jesus, as a gift, that's what gave means. It's not that they earned it. It's something that He did. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Here's our purpose. Here's a pastor's purpose. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, verse 12, again, gives you a little, there's a little distance there. I say saint, what image comes to your mind? Even if you understand what the word biblically means, I say saint, and generally some kind of picture comes to your mind. What is it? Halos, right? I've been to a lot of cathedrals. And there's always a wall or a niche or something for saints, and these are generally men who are depicted, no idea what they looked like often, but these are guys who look like butter wouldn't melt in their mouth with this large glowing halo and put candles under them and, and, and respect that image. All a saint means is someone who's been set apart. In other words, who's a saint? You all are. 
You say, I don't behave very saintly. Well, refer back to verse 1. What did Paul say? Walk worthy. You've been called. You've been gifted. You're in the family. Now grow into it and act like it. But from the moment God gave His Son for you in death and resurrection, and you believed Him and trusted Him, at that moment God set you apart. He set you apart for Himself. He set you aside for heaven. He set you aside for His purpose. And the role of these leaders, these shepherds and teachers, to speak of the last ones, our role, it says in verse 12, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, one way to phrase it is this, the role of these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers is to prepare God's people for acts of service. Because I say ministry, and that sounds so churchy, you go, no, no, you're the minister, that's your thing. Well, look carefully at verse 12. These leaders are given to the church to equip the saints, to equip everyone for the work of ministry, to building up the body of Christ. And this is the great misunderstanding. See, rather than the church becoming a service organization, a whole body that belongs to Jesus that together with all of the members contributing runs forward to serve and to love and to protect and to listen and to heal and to counsel and to teach and to repair and to do all the things that all of those members together can do, what we've generally made of the church because of this misunderstanding is something that looks like this. Those few who are publicly and obviously called like pastors. They do the work of the ministry because they're the ministers. Where does everybody else come in? Well, they just show up once a week, listen as carefully as they can, and support and encourage them. And what we have is a handful of people in a church like ours, 700 or so people, probably 900 to 1,000 people call this place home. You've got just a handful of people serving while everybody else sits back and says, well done. We'll support and encourage you. Now, how limited would that church, that's not our church anymore, not by a long shot, how limited would such a church be? It'll be as limited as the gifts and the time and the availability of those few is. Does that make sense? Think of a team. What would a team look like, a football team, to use the favorite, America's favorite sport? What would it look like if the coaches were determined to make all the plays themselves? be a pretty bad football team. What are coaches there for? To prepare, to equip, to get every athlete ready. The kid who just started and the kid who the coach knows is already going to be better than the coach ever was. Every once in a while, a coach has the privilege of coaching someone who he knows from the first week of practice, this kid's better than I ever was. All I can do is bring him out and then stand back and say, I coached him in high school, now he's on TV. Wow. That's what Jesus had in mind. That puts all the players in the game. That saves us from this terrible mistake of making the church a service industry rather than a service organization. 
Because verse 7 says we've all been gifted. My role and the role of a few other people that God has called to lead in the church is not to do everything for you and not necessarily everything with you, and I'll explain a little bit more about that, but to help you identify how Jesus specifically gifted you help you discover that, help you draw that out, help you make that as strong as it possibly can be, and then to watch you shine with your gift. But here's the deal. Jesus' gifts are different than ours. Jesus' gifts, the gifts that He gives you, are not for you. They belong to you for a short period of time. For as long as you're on earth, you have those gifts, but they're not for you. When you give small children gifts at Christmas, generally, given a few hours, there's this conversation. Little brother says to big brother, hey, can I play with that? And big brother says, no, it's mine. And then the parent has to step in and negotiate. And sometimes those negotiations look the Korea, make the Korea problem look simple, right? <laughs> you have to tell the child, nah, this is yours, but you should cheer, and I don't know. Whatever gifts God has given you, it's yours. He'll hold you accountable for it. It was His personal gift to you. It's what He chose to give you. But He didn't intend for that gift to stay in your hands. He intended for that gift to be used for the good of others because His gifts to you are not for you. And that brings us to a final and beautiful thing. When we each use our gifts we all grow up together. If the whole body contributes individually, every member does its part, the whole body and people outside the body are benefited and are added to it. Look in verse 12 again. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's the role of the pastor. To help all of the people that God has set aside discover their work of ministry, their acts of service, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, as we grow together, as we serve each other, we will become united in our trust in God. We will all grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. It says to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, as we serve and support and encourage one another, we'll all grow to be more like Jesus, and we'll grow stable, and we won't easily be knocked off our faith and torn away from God in our belief and our behavior. Look at verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's a sign of spiritual immaturity is instability. A spiritually immature person hears of a new teacher, a new teaching, a new thing, something that's new on TV, some new program, some new workshop, they're going up in the hills, and they're getting in touch with someone or something, and the spiritually immature person says, that sounds cool, I'm going to go do that. And you've heard about this, and have you watched this YouTube video? Have you seen this guy's Instagram account? It's amazing. And what's happening? You're just getting tossed around like a cork in a stormy ocean. Paul says when we serve together, when we build each other up together, we won't be carried about by every wind of doctrine, verse 14. 
That is the product of human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Instead, this is what's going to happen. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Together we grow up to be like Jesus, from whom the whole body, that's all of Crosspoint, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. So what do these gifts produce when we're each serving each other in the way that Jesus has gifted us? We have these results. We grow in unity. We develop the character of Christ. We become stable in the truth. And most of all, we become more loving because Jesus told His disciples, the way will, everyone will know that you were my disciples is by your what? By your love. But you'll notice in those last two verses, it takes every member, it takes every joint, it takes every part of the body together. And if you think that sounds like a biblical hyperbole and maybe the pastor's just really putting a little extra oomph in it because he's tired himself, let me remind you how important every part of your body is. People who think that small parts of the body don't matter that much have never stubbed their toe in the middle of the night on the coffee table. You got a 250-pound man walking around in the dark. He catches his pinky toe on the coffee table. How much of the man goes down? How much of the man yells in pain? Every bit of the man. I've felt pretty lousy for about two weeks because about two square inches in the top of my stomach hurt. And it just knocked the whole person down. Finally, for the last two days, I've been able to move around, work, out, go to the gym, move like a normal human being. Well, that might be a bit much. If you saw me run this morning, you might recognize it as lumbering or waddling more than running, but (laughs) I felt good because for the first time in weeks, everything felt good. Nothing hurt. In the body of Christ, every member matters, and when every part is, when every part of the body is doing its part, everyone grows. And here's the great misunderstanding. And pastors, men like me, have perpetuated it sometimes for our own reasons, sometimes for selfish reasons, sometimes for fearful reasons, sometimes for the love of control. We've perpetuated it as much as anyone in biblical disobedience. The way we normally think about it, the way it's normally done is this. You come to Christ, good, praise the Lord. What's next? Now you get baptized. Now what? Well, now you go to a whole bunch of classes. And you come at least once a week, for sure once a week, and you sit down and you listen to one guy talk. And he's going to open up the Bible and he's going to teach you. What do I do next? Well, then you go to a smaller group and you have somebody else teach you the Bible. And when, through all of these learning experiences, you mature, and whatever that means, then when you're mature, then we'll put you to service, then we'll welcome you into ministry. So what do we make? Generally speaking, we make in the average American church, and we no longer are such, but we can still make progress, what we make is an audience rather than a congregation. We make an audience instead of an army. 
because people, because of their own guilt, their own shame, their own lack of confidence in Christ Himself who died, rose, and ascended to give them gifts, they think to themselves, in comparison to the guy teaching me, I'm not ready. Well, no, maybe not in comparison to the guy you're teaching, you're not ready. You're not ready to teach the way he is. You're probably not even called and gifted to that. But think about it in human terms. In the average family, when do we start asking kids in the family to help in some small way? What age? About two, right? About the minute they're able to walk on their own and know who they are and know that that guy is different than them, we start saying, hey, 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 don't, don't break that. I mean, the things you say as a parent, don't lick that. <laughs> you know, you swallowed a what now? <laughs> no, I, the things I've said as a dad, don't hit your brother with a stick, right? Don't, don't, don't drop him, don't drop, I said no, right, you're running over. From the time they're very small, from the time they have the slightest inkling, you give them tasks that are appropriate to their age and their developing talents. What can a two-year-old do? A two-year-old can take his plate to the sink. Many parents will buy a stool for the kid so that he can climb up and wash his own dish. Every child is taught to change the toilet paper. Strangely, very few do, but, but there it is, right? We're making that effort together. Now, what would happen by comparison if a family said, listen, we understand, Billy, you're not yet mature, so here's what we want you to do. When you get through college or trade school and you're ready to join the workforce, that's when you can start thinking about others. Until you're in your early 20s, we don't want you to think about anybody else but yourself. Don't worry about us. Don't serve us. Don't consider us. You just do you until you're in your 20s and out of school. What kind of child would you raise in those conditions? A monster. A selfish, immature, self-involved, lazy person with nothing to offer. Not because he didn't have things to offer, but because he was told by word and example, you sit there and listen. You don't think or serve anybody else until we tell you it's time. Here's what Jesus says. The time is the time you're saved. Your gifts and your calling, they all differ. You all have something to offer. If the limits of this church are the very few people who are actually, for instance, on the payroll, our church is going to be about that narrow and do about this much good. But if the eight or 900 people who call this home individually, hearing Scripture, speaking to God in prayer, receiving coaching and counsel from those who have been told to equip them, if we all together discover what our gift is and give that to one another, the results are described here. We will all arrive together to the unity of faith. We will all grow to the stature of Christ. The whole body will grow up and we will all become more loving, more loving toward God and more loving toward people, which is the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor like yourself. How does that happen? Through service. Learning and listening, what you're doing right now is vital, but it's meaningless unless it actually results in God's people saying, Jesus, I get it. You've gifted me. You may not have gifted me as deeply or as widely as the next person, but I understand you've gifted me. I am coming to you and making my gifts available to the others. 
That's when you start to grow. What am I trying to tell you for the last 40 minutes? Simply this, the path to maturity is ministry. It's not that you mature and then you serve, it's that you start serving with whatever capacity, life, and gifts you understand now. And along the way, you grow and you discover and you succeed, and sometimes you fail, and you struggle through adversity. And for those of you who are sitting there thinking, Bruce, you don't know my past, can I tell you that God builds people both through the scars and the stars? Some of you have failed so deeply and carry such shame and guilt. That's what Jesus died for. That was nailed to the cross. You're literally a new creation. You have gifts that do not belong to you. They are Christ. They are yours, but they are not for you. They came from Him. They're intended for others. The gospel itself came to you because it's on its way to somebody else. And some of the people in this room, and they're sitting right in front of me, all their scars make them extraordinarily gifted servants now, and they can reach and love and understand and strengthen people that I have no idea how to talk to because my path, my life has been different. My scars are different than theirs. But when the person that Jesus has called and gifted and blessed in that way, when they show up to the scene of need, the person in need of the care says, finally, Bruce can shut up, and this guy, this gal can help. Now we're getting somewhere. Yesterday, just before the first service of the weekend, we have a Saturday 5.30 service, I received an email that was just such a perfect picture of what I'm telling you about. It was sent to me by a man who came to our church. He grew up here, but he went far from God, as he would tell you in his public testimony. So when he finally came back with his life still a pretty good mess, I'll never forget what he told me after he returned. Some months later, he said, I came into the church and I was nervous because I thought for sure people would remember and reject me. But we didn't reject him. Why? Because it says here we're to be growing in what? In love. So we loved him. So to get an email from him yesterday saying that he, in cooperation with a few other men, including a guy who just trusted Christ and got baptized about three months ago, they're starting a ministry to widows and orphans. And he says, and we're going to define widow and orphan pretty loosely. It doesn't have to be literal. If your life has brought you into a place where you don't have many people to care for you, and you have physical needs that you can't take care of yourself at home, for instance, that's where we're going to step in, and we're going to take care of you as if we were your own family. You know, the beauty of that is I found out about it. Someone will say, aren't you supposed to know everything? Aren't you the senior pastor? Well, yeah, if we want a church of 50 people, I can know everything. But if we're going to have the body that Jesus intended, there's going to be all kinds of things happening, a few of which I'll have some idea. I shared that in the Saturday service, and an older lady who's been in our church practically her whole life came to me, not crying because that's not her way, but very moved, and she said, I'm so glad to hear that because I know so many widows in this church. I've been praying that someone would step up and do that. And I said, well, good news, you had a part in it. She said, really? I said, yes, you saw the need. You prayed to God. God answered your prayer by moving in the hearts of men. In one case, she's never met the guy. How does God do that? Well, it's God. So don't you dare sell yourself short because when you sell yourself short, what you're actually doing is saying to the resurrected, ascended Christ, you can't use me. The audacity of that.
Jesus died, rose again, and ascended so that He could use you. What do you do? You make yourself available. Over half of this church is serving already. You've heard the old 2080 rule. We've blown right past that. More than half of the people in this church can name who they serve and what they do. If you're not among us, no shame, no guilt, no pressure, just an open invitation and a mandate from God. If this is actually your church home, Jesus has work for you to do right here. What will it involve? Anything He's placed in your hands. Your money, your talent, your story, your failure, your success, He's going to use it all because that's how He gifted you. And best of all for you, that's how you're going to grow up because the path to maturity is ministry. Let's pray together. Father, again, how gratifying to hear people excited about what they've heard from Your Word. I don't receive any of that for myself, but I thank you specifically, personally, and publicly that you have called people, and I've already received text messages, and I thank you for it by people saying, I'm available, I'm ready to go. Give us, Lord, the grace, the pastoral sense, the diligence to equip, to prepare these saints for the work of ministry that you've called them to do. As we give this offering, Lord, this is part of our stewardship. This is part of our growth. You've called every Christian that has any income to set aside income as we are prospered. As it comes in, we are to put a part of it aside and give it to you. We give it for the gospel. We give it for the orphan and the widow. We give for those who have been wounded and hurt by sin. We give it to people who don't know you, who don't believe in you, who have no interest in being here this morning because they don't know and they don't believe you're a great person and you're a great love. Help us to reach them and receive this offering from a grateful church and from all the gifted people you've set aside. Gifts great and small, gifts as different as we are, help each one of us make ourselves available to you and receive all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.